Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to part four of the post-election analysis. We're going to be covering a lot of statistics and details today of what happened in some key states, including Arizona and Michigan. And this is Mike Friedenberg. I'm one of the hosts for World News Brief. So without further ado, let's get into it. On November 30th of 2022, Rasmussen Reports published a poll of likely U.S. voters asking about Election Day problems in Maricopa County. The poll asked whether the responding voters agreed or disagreed with contestant Carrie Lake's statement calling the election botched and stating that this isn't about Republicans or Democrats. This is about our sacred right to vote a right that many voters were sadly deprived of on Election Day, November 8th. The results of that poll are stunning. 72% of likely voters said they agree with Carrie Lake's statement, including 45% of those who strongly agree. That's across both Democrats and Republicans. That is a huge, huge number. Polling like this and general outrage over the election disruption that took place on November 8th in Maricopa County made it very clear that the voters were not going to be happy with the status quo and the establishment had to do something to try to manage and mitigate the bad publicity they were receiving due to the election day malfeasance that happened in Maricopa County. This is a conjecture somewhat on my part. However, this conjecture, this narrative does fit the facts. Ultimately, it was decided that a hearing must be given on this. So Judge Peter Thompson was given the task of hearing Carrie Lake's election complaints. There was 10 election complaints from the Lake campaign. Judge Thompson immediately ruled out eight of them. We will talk about that later, which eight he ruled out. And then for the two complaints he would deign to hear in his court, he set some criteria that I believe told us that the results were preordained. We will discuss that in length. First, I do want to talk about the election results on November 8th nationwide. The media narrative for those results was that there was no red wave. But I'm here to tell you that there was a red wave, but it was effectively and selectively negated in a few key states and races that created the impression that the red wave didn't happen. I mentioned this in... uh, part two of the uh, podcast on the election analysis, but but I'm going to go through some more details here just to point out that there was a red wave, but that in some key districts, the Democrats effectively and selectively were able to counter the red wave. But it was not enough to counter the red wave everywhere. For example, in Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson who is much despised by the left, managed to hold on against his opponent, um, a radical left-winger by the name of Mandela, 
And, but he barely held on, it was less than a point when he was predicted to win by three points. And the gubernatorial candidate in Wisconsin, the, uh, going against the incumbent um, Evers, Governor Evers, that would be uh, Tim Michaels. He was up in the polls, according to Trafalgar, whom I trust, and by about a point and a half to two points. In fact, 1.6 points to be specific. Yet he still lost by 51.2% to 47.8%. And this is the middle of a red wave election. This is in the middle of, an, of a situation with events and the environment that we have not seen for many, many decades that favored Republicans. What happened is some big counties, counties that really, really looked bad in 2022, I mean, excuse me, in 2020, in terms of election integrity, such as Milwaukee and Dane, delivered the votes to Governor Evers that he needed to win. He's an incumbent. That's an advantage. They delivered enough votes to make it close for Senator Ron Johnson. He did hang on. So they can sway the votes, but it's not an infinite amount of power to sway the votes everywhere. But it was closer in, in Wisconsin than it should have been for Senator Johnson. And I think that Tim Michaels lost due to election integrity issues. But there was a red wave in Wisconsin, nonetheless, in local races. For example, in the state Senate, the Republicans picked up a Senate seat, gaining a supermajority. And on the House side, the Assembly side, they picked up three House seats, falling just too short of gaining supermajority in the House state legislature. So, see, there was a red wave. But what we're doing is we're seeing a pattern where you have these massive metropolitan areas with very low election integrity being able to influence statewide races. Meanwhile, the local races, you know, with counties that have registrars that are going to be held accountable by local, um, luckily elected officials, you see the local candidates doing really well. So there was a red wave in Wisconsin, except that, unfortunately, gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels was whacked by big counties like Dane and Milwaukee. And speaking of Milwaukee County, Milwaukee County in the 2022 midterms had a voter turnout of 68.8%. That's really high. By comparison, the county I live in, San Diego County, which is a pretty affluent county, had a turnout of 52.5%. When you have those kind of turnouts in key, highly urban areas, there's lots of room for things to be happening there. And given what we saw in 2020, I think that that turnout is highly suspect in terms of actual voters versus ballots being submitted. But enough about Wisconsin. Let's take a look at the national scene. And the national scene is interesting, especially when you take a look at the state legislatures. On November 7th, 2022, Republicans controlled 54.02% of all state legislative seats nationally, while Democrats held 44.31%. That's very significant. That's a big, big margin. And when you have that big of a margin, it's hard to pick up seats. Yet, 
On December 6th, Republicans had gone to 54.49%, and the Democrats were only sitting at 43.97%. So Republicans picked up about 0.4%. Democrats lost about 0.4%. That's what you would expect in a red wave, especially when you already have such a dominant position in these kind of seats. However, the story does not stop there, unfortunately, because in some of the most key states in the country for the upcoming 2024 presidential race, things didn't go too well for Republicans. For example, in Michigan, they lost both the state House and the state Senate to the Democrats. So Michigan now has a Democrat governor, a Democrat state assembly, and a Democrat state Senate. In Pennsylvania, the Republicans lost the state house. That's not good. These are the, some of the states where we saw the most egregious election irregularities in 2020. Let's talk a little bit about Michigan. There was a, a group of Republicans pushing to get a real audit done in Michigan. That never happened. And the reason it didn't happen because a block of the rhino type Republicans in the Michigan House and the Senate blocked having any kind of real forensic audit done. That was, you know, gauche. You know, that was silly. They never liked Trump anyway. And they certainly didn't want to find out that there were any election irregularities. So they did everything they could do to avoid doing a real election audit. And in doing so, they painted a big target on their back. And the target basically said, do election fraud here. And I believe the Democrats accommodated them. So because they showed complete unwillingness to address some of the issues that happened in 2020. The Democrats poured resources into Michigan, not just in the urban areas, but other areas as well. And they were able to take both the House and the Senate away from the Republicans in a red wave elections. That should never have happened. And I believe it happened because of the malfeasance of certain Republicans in Michigan that just absolutely did everything they could to avoid actually really seeing what happened in the 2020 election. Similar types of situation in Pennsylvania. But the bottom line is that these, these states, it's hard to imagine a Republican winning the presidency without both Michigan and or Pennsylvania. Obviously, Pennsylvania would be very nice. We've got some problems going into 2024. And yet, all we're hearing about is ballot harvesting. I'll just say this very briefly. The reason attorneys like Mark Elias and Democrats for, for decades campaigned to get ballot harvesting is they knew that ballot harvesting would always benefit the Democrats much more than Republicans. Sure, Republicans can do more ballot harvesting. In, in some races, it will make a difference. But the idea that we can level the playing field by now engaging in ballot harvesting is false. 
ballot harvesting is always going to be a huge advantage for Democrats because of the way the demographics work, population concentrations in urban areas versus rural, suburban areas, so forth and so on. I understand it's safe to talk about ballot harvesting and wrapping up ballot harvesting operations, but unless we talk about election fraud, I just don't see how we're going to win in 2024 because there was significant election fraud that took place and the ballot harvesting is not going to make up for all of that election fraud. And ballot harvesting provides great cover for election fraud. The wider spread the ballot harvesting, the easier it is to commit, commit election fraud. I'm not saying that we as Republicans and conservatives should not engage in key areas in doing some of the so-called ballot harvesting because that's the way the laws are structured right now. But we should not put aside efforts and being vocal about election integrity and election fraud. I know we, we're terrified of being called the election deniers and the Democrats were very effective in pushing that label such that, you know, even most talk show hosts now are afraid to talk about election fraud. If we don't talk about election fraud, we are going to continue to see erosion of races at all levels. The, the model right now for the, the Democrats is to commit fraud in large urban areas. I believe in Michigan, they expanded that fraud into suburban areas in order to take back the state house and the state senate for the democrats so if we don't talk about fraud and election integrity they're going to continue to expand their fraud operations because they were tremendously successful in 2020 tremendously successful in 2022 and given those successes, why wouldn't they expand their operations? Because nobody is holding them accountable, at least not in some key states. There are some places where are trying to hold them accountable. But in the key states, the states that are going to matter in 2024, they've been given the green light to expand their operations. And speaking of voter fraud operations, let's take a deeper dive into what happened in Arizona. As you're all aware, um, Katie Hobbs has been declared the winner in Arizona and is now governor of Arizona. Um, the polling didn't show that she was going to win. And there was blatant, blatant election fraud in Arizona in the form of 70% of the high propensity Republican districts in Maricopa County having their printers and tabulators non-functional. This is a race statewide that came down to about 17,100 votes separating Hobbs from Lake. So to say that in a county where 1.5 million people voted, that having election day malfunctions in 70% of the highest propensity Republican districts could not have made a 17,000 vote difference is just utterly ridiculous. However, that is really what was concluded 
in the trial that followed, the trial presided over by Judge Peter Thompson. I believe this trial was done and granted because there was so much outrage over the way the election went, especially in Maricopa County, that they had to have at least a show trial. Um, the, the, the Cary Lake campaign filed 10 counts, 10 complaints. Judge Thompson dismissed all but two. Conveniently, the accounts he dismissed included accounts that would have had sworn testimony from those responsible for validating signatures about just how bad the validating process was for those signatures. The two complaints that Judge Thompson allowed the Lake campaign to move forward with was one, that the printers had purposely been sabotaged, maliciously sabotaged, so as not to function on election day. In other words, they had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was malicious intent in sabotage, sabotaging those printers. And the second count was that the chain of custody was violated and that that chain of custody violation was determinative in the election results. Both of these are almost impossible to prove and they go beyond Arizona state law. In Arizona state law, all you have to do is show that that actions could have resulted in a change in election results and then elections should be tossed out or redone. Now, the Lake campaign conclusively showed that the chain of custody was violated in the trial, but Judge Thompson decided it wasn't really determinative. Um, the, K, the, the Cary Lake campaign attorneys also showed that there was mass printer malfunctions. They will show the source of it, but the Judge Thompson said, well, you can't prove that it was malicious. Since it wasn't malicious, then it doesn't count. So it was utterly ridiculous. The trial was a show trial. It was, it was meant to be put up to say, hey, look, we did a trial and nothing to see here. But the trial showed exactly the opposite. It showed that there was mass malfunctioning of printers and that there was a complete lack of chain of evidence for hundreds of thousands of ballots. So what? we saw in Arizona is that if you're the right kind of candidate, i.e. a conservative candidate, and you're in a swing state, any amount of election fraud can be committed against you, and your opponent will be allowed to get away with it. So that's a high-level summary of what happened with the so-called trial. Now let's take a look at some of the specific complaints that the Lake campaign wished to have go to trial. And I think they're pretty eye-opening. And you can see why the judge did not really want to address these complaints in, in court and put this into the record. Number one, and a very obvious one, is the person in charge of the governor's race was Katie Hobbs. Secretary of State. And that's who Carrie Lake's opponent was. Despite many calls for Katie Hobbs to recuse herself from her duties, especially in the governor's race, she refused to. So the person in charge of the election was Katie Hobbs and making sure that the election integrity was met was Katie Hobbs. That right off the bat was not a good situation. And of course, the judge didn't want to talk about that. 
Um, the fact that Kerry Hobbs and her staff coordinated with big tech organizations, such as the Center for Internet Security, ensure that the Lake campaign was censored by Facebook and Twitter and other social media. Adding to the egregious nature of this whole censorship is the fact that Secretary Hobbs and the Maricopa County recorder, Riker, directly participated in the censorship program. So you had the state, Secretary of State, and the county recorder from Maricopa directly participating in a program to censor Carrie Lake's campaign. Of course, Judge Thompson certainly couldn't allow that to be introduced into court, into evidentiary hearing. Then you have the fact that the Maricopa County Recorder, Stephen Riker, raised thousands of dollars for a political action committee he founded, the Pro-Democracy Republicans PAC. This PAC was expressly created to oppose Carrie Lake. This is the person most responsible for the election integrity in Maricopa County, and yet he is raising money for a PAC that he created to oppose Lake. Of course, Judge Thompson couldn't allow that to be introduced to court and put into public record. Then there was the illegal chain of custody of nearly 300,000 ballots. Most of these ballots were the, the ballots that were submitted via drop-off boxes, and there was very express procedures to make sure that chain of custody was maintained. This, I believe, was, was actually allowed to be shown in court, and they did show in court that chain of custody was violated, but the judge decided that violating the chain of custody, which, by the way, they did in 2020 as well, really wasn't determinative. How he made that determination? I have no idea. He just threw it, you know, created this decision out of air. He decided that having 300,000 ballots where there is not proper chain of custody, but by the way, that violates state law, that that's not really important nor determinative. The other complaint that was thrown out, and clearly this needed to be thrown out because you had three depositions from vote validation workers working for the county that testified about the verification process and just how flawed and arbitrary it was. Clearly having three people in court swearing under penalty of perjury about an incredibly flawed and arbitrary signature validation process was something that could not be tolerated by Judge Thompson. Another complaint was 25,000 votes added into the total vote count two days after the election. I don't know the details around this. It would have been interesting to hear about in court, but that was not allowed. And then the other um, complaint was that the Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, threatened county board of supervisors, members from other counties, with felony prosecution unless they certified the election. In other words, the gubernatorial candidate was in a position to threaten county board of supervisor members from counties throughout the state that unless they certified the elections and certified them fast enough to meet her standards, they would be charged with felony prosecution. Uh, well, 
this stuff was not addressed in court other than, as I said, the chain of custody and the, the printer malfunctions and tabulator malfunctions, which actually was just the printer malfunctions, which the, the Carrie Lake campaign lawyers did show malfunctions. There was mass malfunctions on that. But since they couldn't find an email saying, hey, let's sabotage the printers so that Katie Hobbs can beat Carrie Lake, because they could not find an email that stated that exact thing, Judge Thompson said, nope, you can't show malicious intent. Therefore, the fact that 70% of the high Republican districts in Maricopa County had severe issues in terms of allowing people to vote on election day, that doesn't matter. And that, by the way, is not what state law says. State law says, as I said before, state law says that you have to just have to show that election issues and problems could have affected the total to basically overturn the results of election. And clearly they showed that. The, the Carrie Lake campaign definitely showed that. So Arizona was a mess. They had ballot harvesting there. And what I think happened is that um, this was a blatant, blatant election fraud, right committed in plain sight. Why did they do that? I believe they did it because the other type of election fraud, the, the election fraud that was being masked by ballot harvesting, had not been enough to overcome Kerry Lake's advantage going into election day. They knew that of all the Republican voters, that Carrie Lake, by the way, had said, wait until election day to vote. She urged, that was one of her campaign strategies, do not vote until election day because they suspected that the Democrats were filtering in votes from illegal ballots on a day-to-day -day basis based on how many Republicans had voted. So they had to commit blatant, in-your-face election fraud and they did it because they felt that the media environment and the establishment in Maricopa, which had shown itself, Maricopa, which shown itself to be very fraud friendly in 2020, that they might be able to get away with it. They were willing to gamble and they got away with it. They committed blatant in your face election fraud by making it very difficult for Republicans to vote on Election Day. And they got away with it. So that's pretty much what I wanted to talk about. Today, when we get together next time, we're going to be discussing Ukraine and the context of how this conflict really got going. And it doesn't just start in 2014. It doesn't just start when Russia rolled in, you know, about a year ago across the Ukraine borders. There's a much larger context. And unless we understand that context, we're not going to be able to make good decisions going forward on the best course of action to get us out of this mess and hopefully help the Ukrainian people as well. Thank you for listening. And until next time, live long and prosper.